Hello and welcome to Conversations with Writers. Talking to writers about what drives them to tell their stories. Australia's involvement in World War II is often painted as being a time of great patriotism. However, the newspapers, police reports and court documents of the period provide a significantly uglier alternative view. With a Sydney dominated by street gangs, the ports and coal mines under the influence of the Communist Party, and the nation's security services infiltrated by Soviet spies, the reality doesn't match with what has come to be termed the War Memorial View. Authors Michael Duffy and Nick Horden have delved into this history of our actual war effort in their new non-fiction work, World War Noir, a follow-up to the highly regarded Sydney Noir. Nick joined me in the studio recently to discuss the influence and importance of the many characters and criminals who helped determine Australia's response to the war with Germany and to reiterate the need for us not to shy away from our more human, if somewhat darker, past. Hello, Nick. Thank you for joining me. Nice to be here, James. Nick, why do you think it's so important for us to understand and, and look back at this history of criminal and espionage behaviour? What do you think it does for us? I suppose the main thing is because um, particularly ever since 1995 and the Australia Remembers campaign, the glorification of Australian military history has become a very important, very powerful part of the Australian mentality. It's a very important part of um, political discourse and it's a very important way in which governments get voters' elections to basically agree with their views on important questions like foreign policy and security policy and stuff like that. So, therefore, I think it behoves us, if Australia's military history is going to be invoked, then it behoves us to understand exactly what that military history was. And the thing that really struck me when I was researching this book is that there's far more unanimity now about World War II than there was when it was actually going on. And here I get back to two of the novels that we refer to in the book, Come In Spinner by Infinite Cusack and Florence James, which is a Sydney classic. It's far and away the most comprehensive um, snapshot we have of Sydney society in the 1940s, far and away. And another uh, work which is also a favourite of mine um, called You Can't See Round Corners by John Cleary, um, which is a fascinating thing because it illustrates this tension between uh, what actually went on and the image people had of itself. Cleary was a volunteer. He volunteered, he joined the AIF, he fought in the Middle East, he came back to Sydney and then he went up in New Guinea and he served in New Guinea as well. So he was a man who really gave did his bit for the war effort. Yet he's a young, ambitious novelist, and his very first novelist is about a guy who refuses to participate in the war effort. So here we have these two um, novels which are basically sceptical about the war memorial view of history. They are, and they are written by people who were in Sydney at the time and who had borne the brunt of the war, including one who had served in the Middle East and in um, New Guinea, and um, others by uh, women who had seen the effects of the war on women and families. Now, these novels, which are really quite critical of um, what you might call the war memorial ethos, 
Uh, they won, they actually won competitions, major newspaper competitions in 1946. Cummins Spinner won the um, Daily Telegraph one, and You Can't See Round Corners was the number two in the Sydney Morning Herald novel competition of 1946. That was the competition that was actually run by Ruth Park's Harp in the South. So he was in fairly distinguished company. Um, so my point is their, their view was actually quite respectable then. If you've got people who are awarding judges for major Sydney newspapers saying, hey, we should listen to what these people have to say, then it seems to me that that society then was listening to these viewpoints in a way that might not happen today. Mm. It, it seems to underline very much that point of history is written by the winners, but for some reason we seem to have lost the willingness to acknowledge the darker elements of these times. Well, yes, darker or even just human elements. I mean, I, I, I really think, I mean, as far as I can remember, 1995 was a turning point because that's when the then um, Labor government mounted the uh, Australia Remembers campaign. And um, there was a period when Australian foreign policy, um, after having sort of realised that uh, foreign military engagements could be quite divisive in the case of Vietnam, by the 1920s, uh, 1990s that sentiment had um, passed. And I think the idea behind Australia Remembers was that a celebration of Australia's military history sat quite neatly with an agenda of cooperation with um, particularly the Americans and so on and so forth. So um, what I'm saying is that I think uh, this interest in military history does have resonances for policy and electoral choices today. Nick, you've spent much of your career as a journalist and also in politics. You've researched the majority of this book from looking at things like the Truth newspaper and the Daily Telegraph. What's your view on media of the time that was reporting on these gangs and also ultimately on the espionage that was conducted? Um, I, not nearly as acute as um, today. Uh, the, the newspaper, well, for example, the Truth was um, a fairly blatantly commercial operation. Uh, essentially, the overwhelming bulk of the content of truth was racing and divorce news. Uh, it was essentially a, a scandal sheet. Uh, it was widely read and influential, but um, in terms of its content, it was really not, not, not very... It, it wasn't a great contribution to the public debate at all. Um, uh, basically, newspapers tended to steer clear of crime, or if they did report them, they just kind of reported them in a, in a, a. There was sorry, they would report criminal cases and they would report court hearings, but they would never dig deeper into the course of things. There was little in the sense of investigative journalism in, in the way we knew them. They were relying on the police for their information. They were, they were relying on the police and the idea that they should develop a close and cooperative relationship with the police was quite accepted. It, it, it would not have been regarded as being um, unprofessional from a journalistic point of view. Have you enjoyed the process? This is the second book that you've written with Michael. You first yep. wrote Sydney Noir. Now this is World War II Noir. Uh, what is it that keeps taking you back into this, this mix of gangling activity and looking at the history that um, hasn't really been perhaps profiled to the extent it could have and should have? 
Well, I think the I think the um, the thing about Sydney Noir was that uh, th- there were a number of questions there, but we realised that this period, the late sixties and the early seventies, and it was a distinct period because there's quite a sharp dividing line when drugs and narcotics became the main revenue earner. And that starts in the early 70s. That changed the whole nature of crime. So we were in Sydney Noir, we were looking at the six years prior to that. So if you like, that was the end of the ancien regime. And that was the end of the system that we described earlier, um, where where you had the police uh, in there managing the prohibition system, um, licensing corruption to a certain extent, but in meantime, providing a buffer between the criminals and ordinary society. So that was um, the beginning of our fascination with the subject. World War II was interesting, I think, to us because um, we found that a lot of those same kind of uh, strains and tensions in society, particularly as regards prohibition, and uh, basically had existed prior to that time. Yeah. It's interesting also because you see at the end of World War Noir, you start to see the end of people like Tilly Devine and Kate Lee, who played such a major role in the Razor Wars prior to the to World War II. And then you also see the rise, or at least the arrival, of Abe Saffron, who will go on to play a much bigger role in Sydney Noir. So are you how does it feel when you find these characters and their history and you end up you in many ways you are charting their rise and fall across both books? Well, I mean, it's a Sydney that really whose time is, is long behind us now. But the underworld in 20th century history was the last ga- 20th century Sydney was the last gasp of a society which had arrived in 1788 of this traditional criminal underworld. I mean, one of the women that we quoted um, at length in Sydney Noir was a woman called Shirley Briffman. And uh, we went through her transcripts, which was a, a large part of the um, subject, the uh, primary sources we used for that book. And I was fascinated when I was reading her her um, uh, debriefing or her, her interviews to see how often her diction basically used words which have been current in the Australian underworld right back to convict times. So you're basically looking at a society whose mores and attitudes um, were basically those that had come with the convicts from the UK in the 19th century. Now, I think that probably probably because Australian society has changed so much in the last generation or so, um, that it's no longer like that. But uh, it's definitely a historical unity. The point is, I, I think Sydney Noir was the last gasp of a system that went back into the 19th century and World War Noir is a snapshot of that about a generation before Sydney Noir. I mean, for example, Lenny McPherson was just getting his start uh, in World War II um, by 1960 as a kingpin. Freddie Paddles Anderson, another example. Um, Tilly Devine and Kate Lee, they were of an even older generation. I mean, Kate was born in, I think, the 1870s. So like, she goes way back into the Victorian era. But um, uh, it's interesting because they are now associated in the public mind with the 1920s and the razor and the cocaine wars. 
but uh, as a matter of fact, they enjoyed a relatively prosperous afterlife that went on for about 10 or 15 years after that. And you've actually suggested that the criminal element of Sydney and their behaviour was integral to society at that time. Yes. The history of the Australia, of crime in Australia, you know, it's, it's again, there are analogies you can draw, for example, with prohibition in the United States in the 1930s. But uh, in Australia, there was a kind of prohibition, unlike the American example. It was not a blanket prohibition, um, but it was a kind of partial prohibition. So you were allowed to drink alcohol, but not after six o'clock in a bar. But if you're a member of a club like the Australia Club, you could. Um, so in other words, there are all these exceptions. And the, the, the best way to think of it is if you're a policeman bent on enforcing the liquor rules laws and you went into a restaurant in Sydney um, after six o'clock and you saw a bottle of wine or beer on every table, there could be multiple explanations for why that bottle was there and some of the people would be drinking legally and some wouldn't. So it was an absolutely chaotic thing. So the point is here that um, over a period of decades, Australia had prohibited various kinds of behaviour. Restrictions on alcohol is you know, one obvious example. And another very, very important one was um, uh, it was illegal to bet off uh, away from a race course. You couldn't bet on race courses unless you're actually at the course itself. So these created, these created criminal opportunities because obviously people were going to want to bet on horses illegally. And when you create that illegal space, then you get criminals who are in there supplying and you get policemen who are in there regulating. So yes, what we're saying is that the, uh, the prohibition in Sydney in wartime was actually the mirror image of what society wanted. And because it had been deemed prohibited, um, therefore it was, uh, you know, create these opportunities. World War Noir seems to take a, uh, seems to paint a very significant picture of Australia as being a target for espionage. Tell me a little about um, Wally Clayton, otherwise known as Claude. Okay, well, um, look, he, I'm quite sure there's other people who have overtaken him in, in this regard, but Wally Clayton is the most dangerous spy for a foreign country the, who is known to have ever worked in Australia. I'm quite sure there are others who are not known, but of the ones that we know of, he's by far and away the most important. Um, born in New Zealand, like a lot of um, radicals who you know, come to Australia, moved to Melbourne, like most people, a lot of people who joined the Communist Party in the late 30s. He was revolted and radicalised by the um, uh, what he saw of mass deprivation during the... Um, unemployment uh, of the depression and then he became uh, joined the party he married actually um, radical royalty his wife was I think the daughter or the niece of William Lane who was a pioneering socialist who founded the socialist colony in Paraguay um, so uh, he came from that line of radical politics like like the pacifist strand there's always been in Australian politics this small but very influential radical strand. 1939 moves up to Sydney. Within a few months, he's been put in charge of the clandestine network. Um, all around the world, the Comintern, which was the, uh, um, the organising body in Moscow, had a set of instructions that all communist parties around the world were to follow. One of these was, you shall have an underground network. And that was Wally Clayton's job. 
So he set up a structure, basically, of clandestine agents so that in the event that the party was banned, as in fact it would be in 1940, then um, people, they would be able to continue to write and distribute propaganda material, notably their newspaper, the Tribune, which was weekly, and continue to function as a party. So they would still have office bearers, issue instructions, recruit people, so on and so forth. Now, he was given that task in, in 1939 and set about it with extraordinary avidity. He was really good at it. Um, this gets us through to 1940, the party's banned. He goes underground or, uh, or else is um, kind of off the radar. The suppression of the CPA from 1940 on was kind of a half-hearted business. Menzies, who at that stage was Prime Minister, he had wanted to ban the CPA for a long time. And finally, in June 1940, he bit the bullet and issued national security regulations banning the party and other organisations, which essentially sought to um, uh, complicate. You know, the, um, it, the phrase was prejudicial to the war, conduct of the war. Then Labor comes into power itself in um, late 1941, they immediately take a different attitude towards the whole question of the Communist Party. The actual ban remains in force on paper for another year, but in fact they stop implementing it. Um, uh, Doc Evatt, who is the um, minister both as Attorney General and Minister for External Affairs, he is responsible for the intelligence apparatus. And he tells them that he doesn't want to go around prosecuting the, uh, the, the leftist with any great extent, in this environment, Wally Clayton flourishes. So that's the story of Wally Clayton up until about 1942. Then um, the Soviets enter the picture. More or less, there had been little contact between the Australian and the Soviet state from 1917, from the inception of the Bolshevik Revolution onwards. But, of course, in 1941, they became our allies, our very, very important allies. As a result the first Soviet officials started to arrive in Australia. One of them was a guy called um, Mikheyev, and he turned up in 1942, and he was an uh, officer of the GRU, Soviet Military Intelligence. He was a scout. He got in touch with Wally Clayton and very quickly ascertained that Doc Evert's attitude towards security... First off, Doc Evert was sympathetic to the left, and not unsympathetic to communist point of views. And he was also incredibly lax with security. And quite quickly, Nozov and his, uh, um, Mikheyev, his successor, Nozov, and Wally Clayton worked out that Doc Evert's office was the weak link. And they immediately began to recruit and plant sympathisers in that not very large office. And, and is this where Alfred Hughes comes into the picture? Because Alfred Hughes ultimately ends up being spy catcher and spy simultaneously. Yes. He, he was, um, in this regard, in a kind of minor Antipodean way, he was a Kim Philby. Um, Hughes, fascinating guy, Sydney character, um, uh, started out very intelligent, wanted to be a doctor, but couldn't afford to finish his university course, went into the police um, and had some stage in the 1930s became a um, clandestine member of the CPA. In other words, he joined the party, but... Uh, didn't publicise his membership. Um, then he joined the police, the section of the police, the MPI, Military Police Intelligence, which was dedicated to 
looking at um, subversives in, um, in, in uh, following subversives around Sydney. Uh, and in this capacity, um, he got this amazing job where he was simultaneously the gamekeeper and the poacher. What he was doing, he was the expert on the Communist Party and he could... Uh, he was the man, that the go-to man, when the authority said, what do we know about what the party is going, is doing in Sydney? They'd say, send for Hughes, he'll be able to tell us. Because Hughes was, in fact, the CPA member. So he played a very smart game. On the one hand, he filed copious reports full of bump, but on the other hand, he steered investigations away from areas of real sensitivity. We can tell this because at, uh, in 1945 just as the whole show was closing down, he was ordered to write a report about Wally Clayton, who by this stage is the key link man in the whole of the Soviet espionage cell. Um, and this report on Clayton is only two paragraphs long. He said, oh, well, look, we think he's pretty important, but, you know, he's always down there at the headquarters and he gives a lot of lectures, but apart from that, don't really know much about him. What's striking about this is that this report on Wally Clayton who is far and away the most dangerous foreign agent in Australia at the time, is a fraction of the reports that would be submitted on things like Chinese gamblers, including this one who we mentioned in the book of Robert Kwan. And the file on Robert Kwan, it goes on and on and on. The file on Wally Clayton almost isn't there. So it took a while for them to work it out. It's extraordinary. One of the most egregious acts of um, obvious espionage in Australia seems to be the tour of Japanese major Sei Hashida um, back on the 15th of January 1941. And this is one of these moments which I, I read with absolute disbelief. And given that the entire book is based on research, it stuns me to this day that we toured a Japanese major around the key parts of Sydney, essentially preparing him to, to attack. The story of Hashida was that he um, applied for a visa in Tokyo and when you wanted to get into Australia, you applied for a visa from the British Embassy because Australia didn't have uh, any diplomatic representation in Tokyo at that time. And um, so the British, without consulting Canberra, gave Hashida a visa, jumped on the boat and started to come down. The first the authorities knew in Australia knew about it when he was on the boat just about to get here. That confronted them with the question, do they turn him around and refuse him entry, which would infuriate the Japanese at a time when they're um, trying to build better relations with Japan. Now, Hashida, basically, the Japanese had um, always, uh, you know, you go everywhere, you look at everything, you write down everything, and you compile copious reports. Now, this um, habit of uh, cautious, careful, comprehensive intelligence preparation served them very well in um, uh, places where they waged lightning war, for example, in, in Malaya. Um, and no doubt the information that Hashida compiled would have been useful in Australia had they ever actually got around to invade, but they didn't. Anyway, Hashida, the progress of Hashida makes for fascinating reading. He uh, lands in Sydney. He is interviewed by the Daily Telegraph at the docks. And so they said, what are you here for? He said, oh, I've come to gather all the information I can. I particularly want to find out about your military training methods and all your sensitive factories. And so he came into town. He set up his office in the York building just down the road, uh, the Grace building, just down the road here in York Street, which is that beautiful neo-Gothic skyscraper. And um, he moved into the Australia Hotel, 
which is no longer with us, but was, uh, used to be on Martin Place, Castle Race Street, and he set to work. And basically he just hoovered up all the information that could possibly be valuable to someone planning to invade Sydney. Where are the aerodromes? Where's the power station? Where are the roads leading up to the power station? If you're going to land people on the Sydney beaches, which is the best beach? Which is beach shelves at the right angle? Which beach is easiest to drive off? And then he uh, jumps in a car and starts going further afield. He goes up to Newcastle and they get up on a hill in Newcastle and they look down on the Newcastle Steelworks and said, well, that's, you know, that's worth saving. Is there any record that anyone has any concern that this is going on, let alone the questions he's asking and the locations he's asking to be taken to? Yes, the Australians knew exactly what they were going on, but they couldn't actually stop it. So they had this car full of MPI watchers who followed him everywhere. They, um, When Hashida um, hired a hire car, they suborned the driver of the hire car, in order, who was an Australian, and got him to... Um, they followed him like a hawk everywhere. As soon as he asked anyone any question, they would go in there. Um, they were particularly, the watchers were infuriated because somewhere Hashida and his offsider, everywhere they went, they were accompanied by, quote, two white women of handsome appearance, unquote. So he picked up a couple of local girls and they were driving up and down the coast, taking photographs of beaches and bridges and all this kind of stuff and having wonderful lunches. And uh, the MPI were watching all this, but they really couldn't do anything about it. So they're collecting all this information. So that's Hashida in Sydney. The whole rest of the story just goes on and on forever. Hashida, the road trip, is a, like it's an opera. Yeah, <laughs> he caught the bus to Melbourne going around the south coast. Um, he loves the oysters in Batemans Bay. He picks up a girl on the bus going to Melbourne. Um, in Adelaide, there's this maladroit attempt by military intelligence, Australian military intelligence, to try and muscle him out of the way. And he brushes them off. And then he goes to Perth. And he goes to Broome. He's photographing aerodromes. And everywhere he goes, military intelligence are writing these despairing reports. It's just wonderful. Yeah. He's here for two months. And if they ever had invaded, that stuff would have been really important, but they didn't, so it wasn't. But the first aerial reconnaissance from Japan did occur after his tour had ended. How did they get that plane into Australia? By submarine. Basically, the Japanese developed a lot of effort to developing very powerful, very complicated, very sophisticated submarines. One of these, some of these submarines were adapted to carry mini submarines, but some of them actually carried small aircraft, a thing called a Glen float plane. This thing lived in a container like a giant cigar case on the foredeck of a very large submarine. And the MO was that the submarine would surface, they pull the lid off the cigar case, pull the float plane out of its um, container, attach the wings, and then it'd take off, go off, carry out its reconnaissance, turn around and come back. The really terrifying bit, the really hard bit, was finding the submarine on the way back. Yeah. So this is what happened in um, February 1942, the first of these four aerial reconnaissances of Sydney, made by one of these float planes, launched from a submarine about 100 kilometres offshore. And um, they flew in over a completely unsuspecting Sydney, saw what they wanted to see, noted that the much-vaunted blackout was completely ineffective and flew back out to the ocean and had a really hard time finding their mothership. And they did that three more times. 
While the government was concerned by the threat of the communists and the Japanese, the Australian public and certainly the Sydney public seemed to be driven by the fear of the fifth column. Who were the fifth column and did they ever exist? The fifth column basically are a fantasy um, based around a very, very small core. Now, the idea that there's people inside the besieged city who at the right moment are going to turn traitor and open the gates and let the outsiders in, this is, a, this is as old as history. So it's a very, very old story. But it had been given a new and topical twist during the Spanish Civil War, during the um, siege of Madrid in 1936, when, and that was the first time that the phrase, the fifth column, was actually used. Now, there had been a spy mania in World War I when most people of German extraction, for example, in Australia, were deemed to be um, uh, you know, suspicious and probably acting as spies, and particularly so in the UK, where, in fact, there were some spies. But by and large, the fear was greater, infinitely greater than the reality. The bottom line is that the number of people who prepared to carry out espionage and sabotage in Sydney in war time for other people was minimal, right? Okay, but the fact was that the fear of the fifth column became omnipresent. Everyone basically fell into it, except John Curtin, much to his credit, fell into this idea that there was this vast shadowy conspiracy which was just about to take root and just about to flare up. For example, um, there were hardly any Japanese in Australia, okay, after... 1941. But the minute Pearl Harbour um, took place, the authorities assumed that not the Japanese, but the Germans and the Italians element in the community would rise up in support of their Japanese Axis allies. And so, in other words, um, the, it, it was a fantasy. It was a very dangerous fantasy. And, but the problem is that if you're scared of everyone, you can't actually pick yeah, the real people. Well, these rumours even persisted to the level when, I can't remember the year, but there was a series of bushfires that were raging just outside Sydney and the fifth column were believed to be perhaps responsible for even those. Yeah, the, um, the, uh, the biggest target, well, the two biggest targets in Sydney were the Bunrong Power Station, which supplied the power for most of the city, and the Hawkesbury River Railway Bridge. If you took out the Hawkesbury River Railway Bridge, then you would basically cripple Sydney's rail access to northern New South Wales and Brisbane, and you'd add another five or 600 kilometres onto the, um, the rail journey. Therefore, it was a very much a high-value target. In January 1942, at the height of the scare after Pearl Harbour and with the Japanese rampaging down through Malaya, the fear was that someone would try and capture that bridge or destroy that bridge intact. There were bushfires all over that Hawkesbury area then and now. And at that in that particular year, the bushfires were so bad that people assumed that they must have been deliberately lit. Because if you burnt all the scrub away from the uh, approaches to the bridge, it would be very easy, very difficult to conceal defensive positions there. So yes, it was assumed that. It's interesting, looking at the work, and I'm going to quote directly here from the book, it says that in October 1941, there was a report suggesting that having found no evidence of the fifth column, it proved how cunning the fifth column were. Yeah. 
It's, it's just a, how do you defeat a rumour? Well, people believe in witches, for example. And, I mean, like, this, this was a very, very... This, again, was an international phenomenon. Very little of what we talk of the behaviour and the attitudes that we describe in Sydney um, uh, were unique to Sydney. This was a behaviour which was common throughout the Anglophone world. Now, the belief in the fifth column, one of the things that gave it a huge kick along was the um, incredibly rapid fall of France in 1940. The French army was rightly regarded as the best and strongest in the world. And when it was defeated within five weeks, people were just stupefied. And so they sought all these other explanations. Now, there are a lot of decent military history arguments for why the French were defeated by the Germans, including that the Germans had mastered the art of um, concentrating military force in certain sectors and so on and so forth. But people reached for other examples, moral examples. They said that the French were decadent, you know, but they drank a lot of wine and they kept mistresses, which meant the Germans could just walk through them. And the other one, of course, and this particularly applied to the German conquests of Holland and Belgium, was that there were these hordes of fifth columnists just waiting for the Russians, for the Germans, I beg your pardon, to show up. Um, for example, in early 1940, about March 1940, a visitor to the city called Norman Alley. He was an American war correspondent and he was actually a, war, a cameraman. So he was kind of a Neil Davis, um, he was a newsreel cameraman. And he had covered the Nazi invasion of Holland and Belgium. And he was a fanatical believer in the fifth column. He had been there and he had seen it. And there's this fascinating bit in the files where he... Um, is being quizzed when he comes to Australia by military intelligence. They say, tell us about how this fifth column works. And he came up with all these examples of how uh, in Holland he had seen with his own eyes how when um, one of the things the fifth column did is when you had an ad for a common household thing like you know, flour or you know, soft drink, you mutilate the poster in certain ways. Like you take the O out of Coke and that meant, you know, tank brigade waiting around next Oh, they were corner. communicating. Exactly. The theory, right. Or, example, that, for example, when people put their um, shatter tape, shatterproof tape on windows, they were putting arrows and diagrams with the tape. Now, this is the kind of, you know, like weird witchcraft conspiracy theory stuff, but a lot of very intelligent people believed it because it was the only way they could explain them to themselves, the German military success. Well, one form of advertising that was, um, well, was attempted to be banned in Sydney at the time related to contraception. Um, and because of the government's fear around what was returned war aphrodisia. Why was that? What was the fear of people getting together during wartime? Uh, well, here we get back to the point that uh, we are making earlier about prohibition. There was a very strong uh, lobby, um, like a moral, a moral temperance lobby that frowned on sex, frowned on alcohol, frowned on gambling, frowned on fun. Um, wowser is the term. It's a good old Australian term. And um, yeah, so basically the wowser lobby was opposed to anything. Uh, the Catholic Church was particularly opposed to contraception. Um, now, um, the origins of this were that there had been legislation in Australia from the 19th century, but reenacted in the earliest 20th century, which was basically uh, to do with preventing disease. And these laws said, 
If we suspect you of carrying a communicable disease, you can be detained. So we can ascertain whether you have that disease, and if you have it, you can be detained until you're cured. Now, overwhelmingly, these laws were directed at women who were deemed to be immoral. It was used as a tool against prostitution, but it could be used for any any reason. But basically, that, that was a statute on the book. Now, what happened was that uh, these laws had existed in the state statutes for a long time. Then the idea arose if they promulgated these as national security regulations, then it would be harder for people to evade them. The difference was that if you go into court and say, look, my client's been locked up under a national security regulation, then you're less likely to get them out than if they've been put under, under a law. So uh, when they promulgated these regulations, which basically turned this old legislation about examining people who were suspected of having venereal disease, they added on this ban on ad advertising contraception as well. And the reason for this, obviously, is because there was a strong anti-contraception lobby in the country headed by the Catholic Church. Now, the whole point was bizarre because... Oh, there was another theory behind this, of course, is um, in wartime, and this happens all over the world, governments always say, Jesus, we need more people because all these people are getting killed, so we need more people to replace them, so therefore we've got to make it easy, you know, uh, step up the birth rate. And the obvious way to step up the birth rate is to cut back on contraception. So, it was very, But the point is that the minister who introduced those regulations was um, heartily praised by the Catholic sectors of Catholic opinion. Yeah. During this period of prohibition, one of the great drivers seems to have been sly grog. Prohibition around alcohol never seems to work very well at all, but it does seem to build a thriving gangland community. What was Sydney like at that time? First off, there were strict limits to when you could consume alcohol in a pub. Um, but on the other hand, and it was almost, it was very difficult legally to buy alcohol in a portable bottle form and take it somewhere else where you could consume it. That was almost impossible. But there were actually quite plentiful supplies of this bottled liquor. So essentially um, a very uh, lucrative and uh, market sprung up. If you wanted to go into a pub and buy a bottle of beer and take it away with you, even assuming the publican would sell it to you, which they often wouldn't because they were given a quota at the beginning of the month and they would, you know, obviously um, they could get more if they sold it on the black market. So if you tried to buy it over the counter, you wouldn't. If you went around the back door and offered him three times the list price for it, you could. So that was what it was all, all about. Um, and also there was a huge black market in smuggled spirits in, in other ways. I think um, uh, I remember reading somewhere in the research about someone who um, bought what looked like a wonderful bottle of Scotch whiskey only to, with the seal intact, only to find that somehow someone had sort of brilliantly drilled in and removed the whiskey and replaced it with tea but somehow done it all so perfectly that it looked like a bona fide bottle of scotch. Times of, of crime seem to um, generate and, and, or at least create moments of great innovation amongst the criminal elements. One of them that comes to mind is a story you wrote about, which is uh, of the gaming practice up around Newcastle, where a couple of key racketeers worked out the differences in radio calls. The key development here was the introduction of radio stations and radio, commercial radio broadcasting in the 1920s. They, and they could broadcast real-time news or pretty close to real-time news 
from um, uh, race courses. So what the, the innovation, the beginning of the SP booking industry, which flourished so mightily from the 1920s right up until the 1980s and 1990s, was that an SP bookie would find out what the odds were right at the very beginning of the race, which was good because it meant that you were no longer having to factor in variables like heavy tracks and stuff like that. And then, because the result of the race was broadcast pretty close to the end of the race, they, they would immediately pay out. So, in fact, within sort of 20 minutes or half an hour of the race actually being included, the punter would be getting his beating bet from his hand. It was very convenient. And what that meant is you didn't have to be on a race course to bet. And what that meant is that a very significant percentage of the Sydney population, about 30, 40, 50% of adults, sometimes it was estimated, used to bet on the horses using SB bookies. Right. So now, but there was an interval between the results being declared official and the radio actually broadcasting those results. Not very long, it might have been five or 10 minutes, but there was actually an interval. When the races were run in Newcastle, that interval was extended. So what happened was that um, some uh, enterprising gentleman got hold of a wireless transmitter in Newcastle and they radioed the results of the races through to their to their cohorts in Sydney um, and uh, armed with that information, they placed bets on horses which had already won. That's fantastic. And this worked. The reason this worked is because because the race was taking place in Newcastle, the interval between the end of the race and the broadcast of the result over Sydney radio was longer than it otherwise would have been. That was the trick. Oh, that's tremendous. Yeah. Nick, it's been fascinating talking to you today about our rich and um, difficult history. I'd love to see what you do next. Sydney Noir was a great read. Thoroughly enjoyed World War Noir. So thank you so much for coming in today. Thanks very much, James. Yep. And World War Noir is available online and in bookstores right now. Next month, we'll have something completely different. So please join us then. In the interim, you can follow us on Twitter at ConversationsWW. This has been James Rickards for Conversations with Writers. Thank you very much for listening.